your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. Last week we looked at the first couple of verses. I'll, I'll read that again, um, but our focus will be, thank you, our focus will be in verses 3 through 8. Philippians 3, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 uh, is where we'll be tonight. But let me begin reading in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let me pray for our time in God's word this evening. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise for who you are and for what you've done. God, we thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you for the truths of your gospel. Thank you, God, for the joy in which it brings to us. Lord, I pray that your gospel would have a true effect on our hearts and our lives that would lead us to greater worship to you. I pray even in this time, As we sit under your word, God, that your spirit would convict us and change us. May you be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, When I was much younger, uh, for some reason, I I had a huge fear of um, going to jail. Uh, Why is that funny? You want to go to jail? <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought, okay? Well, I had a real fear, a big fear. And uh, now this is the part that's weird, okay, is that I had this weird, like, uh, night, like living nightmare, like, thought. That's so weird. No, th- th- no this is the weird part. That anytime I heard sirens, like, go off, um, or I saw police or something, I imagined in my head... That, like, the police busted into, like, this criminal's house, and you go, and the police go, we got you. And they go, no, no, it wasn't me. And they open up a phone book, which you guys probably don't even know what that is. It has names and numbers and addresses in it, which is kind of crazy. What were we doing with that? And the criminal would open up the phone book randomly and just point to it and say, no, it was him. And it just happened to land on my name. And the policeman would go, oh, sorry, we'll go get him. And then I just imagine when I hear the sirens that they're coming to my house to arrest me and put me in prison. I thought that's how it worked. And I remember, like, being so paranoid by this. Like, I could have the best day, like, oh, everything's great. And it was, like, the best day I've ever had. And I'm laying there in bed, about to go to sleep, so happy because it was such a great day. And then all of a sudden I hear sirens going off in my neighborhood. And, like, I was just terrified. And I had to, like, go to my parents and be like, they're going to take me away. 
you know? And at first I was like super suspicious. They're like, son, is there something you need to tell us? And I'm like, no. Like, the, the burglar is going to point in the phone book. It, it, they didn't understand. But the point is that just the thought of getting thrown into prison like ruined me. It, it terrified me. It crushed my spirits. No matter, like I said, no matter how good of a day I had, just that thought like paralyzed me. And if you remember from last week, Paul is writing this letter from prison. And one would understand if maybe he wrote this in a very negative tone. One would understand if he was not optimistic. One would understand if his spirits were crushed. I mean, my spirits were crushed just by hearing sirens, right? But he's actually in prison. And so one would understand if that was the tone. However, we actually see the complete opposite. Instead, we see a letter that is full of joy. I mean, we see joy just dripping off of every page. It's everywhere in this four letter of this four chapter letter. How can he be so filled with joy when he's chained in prison? When there's no indication if he's going to be released or if he will die? How can he be so joyful? Well, as we'll see throughout this letter, the reason he could be so filled with joy is because of the effect the gospel of Jesus Christ has made in his life. That even through difficulties, even through the fact that Paul has been persecuted for the gospel, that he's been beaten because of the gospel, that he's been imprisoned because of the gospel, he can still remain joyful. Why? Because of the impact that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes in one's life. Despite being in prison, Paul's passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ creates in him this, this unshakable joy. And we too, as partakers of the gospel, can share in this joy. And he begins his letter to the church in Philippi expressing the joy that the gospel of Jesus Christ creates in him and has thus sustained him even through the difficulties in life, even though he's in prison. And tonight we're going to examine five components of life in which the gospel brings joy to the Christian. Five ways that Paul says we can still have joy of the gospel. So that's what we're looking at. Just simply five main points for you tonight. First, we'll see joy in prayer. Joy in prayer. Verses three through four. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul is a man of prayer. And in these two verses, there are three aspects to his prayer life that I want to point out. The first is that his prayers are for others. His prayers are for others. And no doubt, Paul does pray for himself at times. Yes, in fact, he'll even say to this church at the end of this letter to let your request be made known to God. And so we should pray for our concerns and our burdens, uh, even of our own selves, and lay them at his feet. Yes, but our prayers should also be on behalf of others as well. That we should be others-minded and we should care for their concerns, whether it be physical concerns or whether it be spiritual concerns. 
Our prayers should be others-minded. Do your prayers consist of prayers for others? And sure, when you're in like a small group setting and, and you're sharing prayer requests, it's no problem praying for others. Of course we'll do that. But what about in your private prayer life, if you have a private prayer life? Do you spend time praying for other people, for people other than yourself? I mean, what about just simply here at TYG when we pray for those that we support? I mean, what a great opportunity for you to pray for others. What a great opportunity for you to pray for a teenage girl who does not have the academic or the biblical education like you have. Who does not have the money to buy simple things such as shoes. For those who have not been here for a while, do you know that the money that we sent her, she wrote us a letter and said, thank you. I finally have enough money to buy a pair of shoes because of the money that you sent. What a great opportunity for us to pray for two sons of a missionary. One son who's saved and the other who isn't as far as we know. Who feel isolated in a country in which they don't have groups like this where they can learn about God and where they can make friendships. So we pray for them. What an opportunity for us to pray for a missionary who risks his life and the lives of his family for the sake of the gospel. Who receives his income from people like us. Who preach the gospel to people who likely want to kill him because of it. What a great opportunity for us to pray for him and for his family. Do you pray for these people? I know there's about three or four of you who consistently pray for these people. What about the other 65 of you? Do you pray for them? Why is it we have such a hard time finding people to pray for these four people that we've committed to pray for? Will you pray for others? Will you pray for these four? Will you pray for one another? Will you pray for me? Man, I need your prayers. This is why I've asked the student leadership team to create a prayer group beforehand. Because I need your prayers every Wednesday. We need your prayers every Wednesday. Do you pray for others? Second, Paul's prayers are full of thanksgiving. It's for others and it's full of thanksgiving. See, it's not just that he prays for others, but his prayers regarding them are thankful prayers. And in the next verse, we're going to see why he's thankful for them. But what is the object of his thanksgiving? What is he thankful for? He says, you. He says, you. He's thankful for them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul thanks God for the people in this church. Our prayers ought to be prayers of thanksgiving for one another. So I think rarely are we thankful for people. We may be thankful for good health and we'll thank God for that. God, thank you that I got over this sickness. Maybe we're thankful for the food that we're about to eat. God, thank you for this food you provided for us. Please bless it to our bodies. We're thankful for a vacation we're about to go on. We're thankful for all these other things. Are you thankful for people? Are you thankful for the body of Christ? Do you thank God for specific people? For one another? Or does that just kind of seem like a waste of time? You know what I mean? Like a waste of prayer time. Like, why am I spending time thanking God for others? 
Like, why am I spending my, my prayer time? I, I hardly pray anyways. Why would I spend my time of prayer saying, oh, God, thank you for this person. Thank you for this, for him, for her, for them. Like, why, why would I do that? It, it, it doesn't seem like it would really accomplish anything. Like, like, like what's the point of, of using my prayer time to thank for I'd rather pray for other things, bigger things. Why would I use my prayer time thanking God for these people? Seems like a waste of time. Paul didn't think it was a waste of time. He said he gave thanks for them always in every prayer of his. And what do these prayers of thanksgiving of others create in him? Joy. This created in him joy. So the third thing we see of his prayers is that his prayers are with joy. This is the result of the gospel. You see, he has a relationship with these people why? Because of the gospel. That is their bond. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in light of this, he is thankful for these people. And he prays for them. And he gives God thanks for them. And as a result, he's joyful. How can you not be joyful when you're always giving thanks to God for the gifts of his people? Do you see? The body of Christ is a means of grace given to us by God. And so will you give thanks to God for one another? Will your prayers be prayers of joy and thanksgiving for others? So we see joy in his prayers. Secondly, we see joy in partnership. Verse 5. We see joy... In partnership. Why is it that Paul's prayer is a joyful prayer of thanksgiving? Why? Verse 5. Because. Hey, look, there's our answer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's why. Because of their partnership in the gospel. Now, the word for partnership here is a word maybe many of you are familiar with. It's the word koinonia. And depending on the context, it can mean partnership like here. It can mean participation. It can mean fellowship often. And how we use the word fellowship today, I think, has lost its meaning a little bit. Like if, if, if we get together with another Christian and we have a good time, maybe if we, even if we talk about God, then we say, oh, that was fellowship. That was good fellowship. Like if, if we get coffee with, with, with a non-believer, then we're just hanging out. But if we're getting coffee with, with a fellow believer, well, now we're having good fellowship. Like, that's how we use the word fellowship, right? But no, that's not it. That's not koinonia. That's not the fellowship in which Scripture talks about. And that's certainly not the fellowship that Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about a deep partnership, and specifically a partnership in the gospel. He is saying, in this relationship, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes first. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the core of our relationship. That this is a divine partnership. It is a bond centered around Jesus Christ. This partnership in the gospel, I think, is expressed in both their partnership in their friendship as well as their partnership in mission. I'm going to explain both of that. Paul and the people in Philippi now have a deep friendship, this relationship. 
not because they have similar interests. Like Paul and this church is like, oh yeah, we're super into Pokemon. Like that's not what it is. Not because they're in a similar social bracket. Not because they have fun together. This is why they're good friends. No, they have a deep friendship because of their common bond in Jesus Christ. And we'll see later in this letter that this church sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus to deliver a gift to Paul. And you're going to see the risks that even he took to do that. So we'll examine that more then. But the point is that they they have built a deep friendship with one another because of the common bond of Christ. What do your friendships look like? What is the bond that holds your friendships together? Is it a shared interest in sports? A shared interest in video games? In books? In school? In entertainment? In music? You have these shared interests in these things? And these are wonderful things. And these are wonderful things to bond over. That's fine. But there is one that is greater than all these things. And that is Jesus Christ. Do you have friendships that are bound through the blood of Jesus Christ? These are the deepest and the most fruitful friendships in the world. Those that are centered around Christ. If you are a Christian, you must have some of these friendships. And I hope that you do. And we hope that this is a place in which can cultivate that. Do you have friendships with one another that go deeper than than simply what the world offers? Do you have friendships that are centered around Christ and that promote a Christ-centered mindset on how you live your life? If you have friendships with other believers, I encourage you, prioritize those friendships and prioritize Christ in those friendships. Now this partnership was not just a partnership in their friendship, but it was even deeper than that. It was a partnership in their mission. See, it started 10 years earlier when Paul first preached the gospel to them. And since then, they had received the gospel, and the gospel now has had an effect on their life. And they began growing in the Lord. And as a result, they became partakers and participants in the gospel with Paul. They are now active participants in their partnership of the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul is thankful for this. And this brings him much joy. See, it's one thing to have a friendship with one another. And it's another thing to be co-laborers in the gospel. It's deeper. To partner together and say, we are living our lives. You and me, buddy, friends, we are living our lives together on mission for the proclamation of the gospel. And so we bear one another's burdens in this and we pray for one another and we encourage and we challenge one another and we love one another because we share the same mission. We are partners together on mission for the Lord. There's a special bond to that. You guys know, I hope you know, we have a great TYG staff here. We're losing a great one. But we're very blessed by those who we have here. 
And I have a, I'm very thankful for them, each and every one of them. And I have a special love for them because we are partners together on mission for the Lord. And we go to battle together every week. And there's a special bond to that. We are partners in the proclamation of the gospel together. And there's something special about that. Do you have this partnership with others in the body of Christ? Your friendships. Do you have a partnership in the gospel? That in your friendship, you can speak to one another to push each other towards Christ in your mission to live on glory for him. There's joy to be found in the partnership of the gospel of Jesus Christ with one another. Thirdly, we see that there's joy in the fullness of salvation. Verse 6. There's joy in the fullness of salvation. Paul not only is thankful and finds joy in their partnership of the gospel, but he also finds joy in the fullness of their salvation. Let me ask you, what is it that you think of when you think of salvation? When you think, I'm saved, what is it that you think of? You think of the past in which you believed in Christ and you were saved? Do you think of the future, that one day you will be with God forever and you will be saved? Well, salvation is past, present, and future. You got that, huh, Joe? That's right. And this is, I think, what Paul is talking about, the fullness of their salvation. And the first thing I think we notice is who is the author of our salvation. Let's read verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see that? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. Who is he? God. God is he. You see, all of it, our entire salvation is from God. Through each piece of our salvation, we see it is not our doing. But it's God's doing. So let's look at each piece. First, we see it in our justification. That it is He, it is God, who began a good work in them, who justified them. Now, some would argue Paul began the good work in them. In fact, it is Paul who brought the gospel to them ten years earlier. But even he, even Paul, would not take credit for this. He doesn't say... I began the good work in you when I shared the gospel to you the first time 10 years ago. No, instead he gives credit to where credit is due, to God. It is God who began the good work in them. See, for us to be saved, for us to be justified, for us to be forgiven of our sins, we need God to begin the work in us. We love God because he enables us to love him. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Going down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Do you see that? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, I think, makes it very clear. We do not save ourselves, but the salvation is granted to us. You guys know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is by grace that we are saved. It is a gift from God. There will not be a single soul in heaven who will be able to say, I'm here because of what I've done. Yeah, God did most of it. I mean, he did. He did a lot. But I did choose to love him. Or I did have really good faith. I mean, God did so much. But I did live a pretty good life for him. No one will be able to say that. Instead, we will all say, I'm here because of God alone, period. Because he loved me while I was his enemy, while I was a sinner in rebellion towards him. I'm here because God took me out of darkness. And if he didn't act, I wouldn't be here. You see, if you are saved, it is entirely because of God. And you say, yeah, but, but I believed in him. I placed my faith in him. I did that. And I'd say, amen, you are saved through faith by grace. See, even that faith is a gift from God given by his grace. In fact, that's what some think Ephesians 2.8 is referring to. It's not clear. That's what people believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? What is it that he's referring to? Based on how the original language is written, some believe, many believe, that is the faith that is the gift of God. That's what he's saying. It is the gift of God. What is that faith? It's given to as a gift by grace, as he just said. In fact, even Philippians 1.29, we'll get there in a few weeks. Or at some point. For it has been granted to you. Right? It's been given to you. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What's been granted to you? What's been given to you? Two things. That you should suffer for his sake and that you should believe in him. That's been granted to you. So you see, even our faith is granted to us by his grace. Is it your faith? Yeah, you believe. Praise God. But you believe because God opened your eyes to see. Because he breathed new life in you. And because he granted you faith. Then you responded in your faith. See, our justification, us being made right with God, is all entirely God. He began the work in us. But then we even see it in our sanctification. And this is now our present living, is what I mean. That, that, that our progressive sanctification, if you want to get specific. That this is us living for Christ and becoming more and more like Him. We're not simply saved by the grace of God. We're justified by the grace of God. And then God says, okay, well, good luck. I saved you by my grace. But you better prove yourself now. You're on your own. 
You better prove that you are indeed worthy of me saving you. No! God gave us his spirit to indwell us. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside you, and he is refining you day by day. Galatians 3.3 Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Then what are you talking about? Are you foolish? You were begun by the Spirit. You think you're being perfected by the flesh now? Like, come on, guys. Paul's like, you were justified by God. You were justified by the Spirit. And now you think you won't be sanctified by Him? You were begun by the Spirit. You will be perfected by the Spirit. Do not fall to, to a works righteous salvation. And I mean even this part of your salvation, the present day, the sanctification. And maybe it's easy for you to admit that you are justified by grace. Yeah, I know that. Of course, I needed God to save me, to open my eyes. But know that you're sanctified by grace too. Don't fall to works-based salvation in your sanctification. Know that it is by his grace and it is through his spirit that you are being sanctified, that you are becoming more and more like Christ. And Paul here in Philippians says, God will bring you to completion. He doesn't just save us and then just leave us. But he continues to work in us. Romans 8.29, we know 8.28 very well. And right after that says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. How is it that God is working in us? By conforming us into the image of his Son, of Jesus Christ. This is the work of God. We do not become God ourselves. That's not what he's saying. We don't become divine, but we start conforming more and more into the image of Christ. And we must. This is part of our salvation. God does not, does not start something and not finish it. He does not start a work in us and then not finish us. We can't lose our salvation and we can't remain the same from the day we became a Christian until now. And nothing has changed. No. There is no salvation that does not include a transformed life. It doesn't exist. God is completing you, Christian. And he's conforming you into his image. Now let me be clear about sanctification. Sanctification does not mean... Being aware of how perfect you are becoming. That's not what it means. Sanctification means being aware of how sinful you are and how the Spirit changes that. It is confessing sin and it is relying on His grace and His Spirit to change you and to mold you into His image. Do you see the difference? It is a reliance on God and His grace. Well, not only that, but this work of God in our salvation is future as well. It's thirdly and lastly in this section that we see it in our glorification. That if you are a Christian, one day you will be with God and you will be made perfect without sin. That is a guarantee. That is a promise that if you are indeed a Christian, this is 100% true for you. You will be made complete. 
And how can we be so confident? Because it is God who does it. That's why he says it is God who does this. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says he will. He is so confident that these Christians will be brought to completion. Why? Because his confidence is in God. If God started you, he will complete you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Do not fear, Christian, that one day, let me say it this way. Do not think it this way, that one day in the past, years ago, God did love me, but then now, now that I have had a dry season, and now that I've been having some doubts, and now that I've been struggling with sin, now God no longer loves me. He did, but I've ruined it. I've messed up so much since then. He no longer loves me. Do not think that. If you are indeed truly in Christ, Christian, you will see glorification. That is promised. See, Christians, they are people of the future, of a sure future. Christian, you are a citizen of heaven already. Your future has already begun. You you are a citizen of heaven, of God's kingdom. And no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you are a citizen of heaven and you will be brought to completion, to glorification. And nothing can change that. One day you will stand before God. In the day of Jesus Christ, as it says, and you will stand victorious because he who began a good work in you will bring you to completion. Do you see the joy in that? Do you see the joy in which this should bring you? Christians, see the fullness of your salvation and see that it is all of God. Have joy in the gospel. Have joy in the work that God has done in you and that he continues to do in you. And then he promises he will bring to completion. And notice Paul's joy is found in seeing the fullness of salvation in these people. That's why he's joyful. Do you find joy in the salvation of others? Do you celebrate of the saving work of God in the lives of others? Do you partake in in the proclamation of the gospel? And do you rejoice in that, in the work of God? That's why Paul is joyful. Now to those in here who are not a Christian, know that this salvation, this past, present, future salvation, This fullness of salvation is offered to you. And know that it is all of God. You cannot rescue yourself from darkness. You cannot save yourself from the wrath of God. You cannot make yourself worthy of salvation. If you are basing your salvation or you are attempting to be made right before God based on yourself in any way, Please heed the warning of Scripture. You cannot do so. But God is able. 
the power of salvation. All of it, the justification, the sanctification, the glorification, all of it rests in the hands of God. If you seek to have a loving relationship with God, if you seek salvation, go to Christ, who is our Savior, and ask that he would grant you a heart of repentance and faith to believe. Salvation is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Well, next, where are we here? Number four, joy in unity, verse seven. Joy in unity. Verse seven says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This gospel, this gospel in which they are partners together. Remember we talked about this gospel in which has saved them. This gospel united them together with one another. Do you see that? And there's joy to be found in that unity of God's people. Paul says they are all partakers of grace with him. All. He does not elevate himself above the rest. The apostle. I think many people will probably, a lot of people view Paul as like one of the greatest, right? One of the greatest apostles. And yet Paul says they are partakers of grace with him. From the youngest and the most immature believer to Paul himself, they are all partakers of grace. So we must understand that all Christians are equally sinners, are equally recipients of God's grace, are equal at the cross. If you believe you are not as much of a sinner as this person, or that they need more of God's grace than you do, then you will not have unity with the body of Christ. Instead, your your pride will, will prevent you from the joys of the unity of the body of Christ. Because you'll constantly see yourself better than everyone else. And you'll see everyone else just not quite as good as you. Do you have a heart of unity with other believers? Or does your pride keep you at arm's length from others? This is how division starts in the body of Christ. Are there believers in which you just you cannot stand? Other Christians... You you cannot stand them. Are there believers in which you feel like that they have nothing to offer you because they're they're just so immature? Are there believers in which you you don't want to fellowship with because they just haven't quite reached your level yet? Paul had already said that it is God who is at work in you. God. God. So how can you be prideful and look down upon someone else and their spiritual maturity or immaturity? It's God's work, not yours, not theirs. They are partakers of God's grace just like you. And you are partakers of God's grace just like them. And because of this, there ought to be unity within the body. Not only unity with one another, but also unity in how we walk how we live our lives. Right, looking back at our text, 
that because of the gospel, because of salvation granted to them, because they are partners in the gospel, Paul implies that they are united together in his imprisonment and in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Do you see that unity? Paul is imprisoned because of his proclamation of the gospel. And while they may not be imprisoned as partakers of this grace and as fellow partners of this gospel, they will be called to walk in a manner worthy of this gospel, which we're going to see later. And that may require sacrifice. That may require hardship. And in this way, they're united together with Paul, as we are. If you are a Christian, we are all united together in the grace of God and united in our purpose and in our sacrifice and in our priorities and in our submission to the king. We are united in all of these things together. And there's joy in this unity. That no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, I mean, Paul's in prison. We have joy knowing that we are fellow partakers of this grace. And we are fellow partakers of this gospel. There is a unity in which all Christians have in which we can say, You're saved by the blood of Christ? You're a partner of the gospel? You proclaim our king? You deny yourself and live for him? Me too! We're the same. We're bonded in that. We're united in that. Even though our lives may look different, our circumstances may look different, what is our core is the same. And there's no room for division in that. Rather, there's joy in that unity. Now, lastly, in verse 8, we see joy in the love of Christ. Joy in the love of Christ, verse 8. He says... For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says he yearns for them all. How? With the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the effect that the love of Christ has. It ought to give us not just a a unity with one another, but a yearning, a deep love and affection for one another. We should not just just tolerate other Christians because they're Christians. But we should have a deep love for one another because of the love of Christ that resides in each of us. You see that? You know, when I speak to Christians who, who are having issues, let's say, with other Christians, I often will hear them say something like, yeah, but I don't need to be best friends with them. Right? Like, like that's their defense. Yeah, I don't need to be best friends with them. But I didn't say you need to be best friends with them. But you need to love them. You see, in that scenario, they're, they're fighting just not to be divided with them. And so they say, well, fine, then I'll just tolerate them. I don't need to be best friends. I'll tolerate them. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says we ought to love one another. Not simply tolerate one another. doesn't mean we have to be best friends. I mean, look at, look at the life of Christ. Was he best friends with every Christian? No. He had 12 disciples in which he walked closely with for three years. And within those 12, he had an inner circle of three. And some would even argue that within that three, he had one, John, who was his best friend. Jesus wasn't best friends with every believer 
but he loved every believer. He didn't simply tolerate some believers, but he loved them. If you are a Christian, you ought to be united in the love of Christ with every believer. Whatever it is that may be causing a division between you and another believer, let it not be so. But put away any pride, put away any self-righteousness, any differences, and let the love of Christ that defines each of you be the basis of the unity. There's joy in the love of Christ and joy in the unity in which it brings us. Well, Paul's in some pretty bad circumstances. But even so, he writes maybe the most joyful letter in all of Scripture. And how does he remain joyful despite his difficult circumstances? Because his heart is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the effect and the impact that Christ makes in one's life. And was he always perfectly joyful? No. In fact, he'll share that at the end of this letter. But God had been working in him, completing what he started in him. As we work our way through this letter, Lord willing, you will see the joy that we can have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where do you seek your joy? What do you do when, when, when you feel you have no joy in life? There's joy in Christ. And if you feel that you lack joy in life, go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe for the first time you need to go to Christ and repent of your sins and place your your own faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And maybe you have no true joy because you are not truly in him. Or maybe you are in him, but you've lost sight of the gospel. And you've become distracted by the things of this world. And as a result, you've lost joy. Remember the gospel. Remember the grace of God. Remember that he began a good work in you and that he is faithful to complete it. Remember the immeasurable riches that you have in Christ. Even you, Christian, go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And find joy in Him. Despite our circumstance, we can find joy in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the joy that we have in you. Thank you, God, for the gift of salvation. Thank you, God, for the means of grace in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would grant us joy in you and in your gospel. I pray, God, that this would that you would renew and refresh us in the truths and the wonders of your gospel, and that it would create in us a desire to live for you and worship in all that we say and do. God, help us in this time as we discuss. May your truth continue to be spoken to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.